This episode is presented by Away Travel. Quite simply, Away makes everything you need for a trip. Away makes everything you need for a trip away. Away started with the perfect suitcase, then built from there, creating a range of travel standards developed from the travel stories of friends and seatmates. The pieces aren't smart, they're thoughtful with features that solve real travel problems. To give the whole world access to better travel standards, Away took the direct-to-consumer approach to lower prices and the quality is guaranteed. Your Away suitcase will be with you for life. We're teaming up with Away and Podgo to give you the best deal on premium luggage by going to podgo.co forward slash away. That's podgo.co forward slash away. Away travel, here to make your journey seamless. Hello and welcome to the second of March's After Dark. I'm Emily. And I'm Gemma. This month is a little different. Because voting was so close, we decided to do two different podcasts rather than a deep dive into one subject as normal. In the first podcast, Emily looked at some popular conspiracy theories, and today I'm looking at the Titanic disaster. Now, the story of the Titanic has been told over and over, so I want to do something a little different and look at the stories of those on board. And inspired by Emily's podcast... I'm going to look at a couple of conspiracy theories around the ship's sinking as well. Okay, so for anyone that's not familiar with the story of the, of the ship, tell us about Titanic. On Wednesday the 10th of April 1912, the who's who of early 20th century society gathered in Southampton for the launch of the biggest ship in the world, the White Star Line's RMS Titanic. What does the um, RMS stand for? RMS stands for Royal Mail Ship. When it set sail, the Titanic was carrying over 3,000 sacks of mail. It's important to remember that the uh, Titanic carried cargo as well as people later on in the podcast. Okay, so back to the launch of the ship. So the crew reported for duty at 6am and were joined 90 minutes later by Captain Edward John Smith, who was an experienced captain transferred from the Olympic. Remember his name for later as well. Passengers began to arrive at around 9.30am and all were aboard by the stroke of noon when after three loud blasts on the Titanic's powerful whistles, the ship departed. On board were 2,240 people. This number was made up of 1,300 passengers and 900 crew. Of that total, only 706 people would survive the trip. The Titanic's departure wasn't without incident. That morning, a small coal fire was discovered in one of the bunkers. Now, whilst this was alarming, it was not uncommon on steamships of the time. The captain and the chief engineer examined the area and concluded that it was unlikely to have caused any damage that could affect the whole structure. And the stokers were ordered to continue controlling the fire at sea. Another unsettling event took place when the Titanic narrowly avoided a collision with the America Line SS New York as it left the dock. Bit of a fun fact for you. Eight members of the crew had slipped out for a last minute pint. As the ship began to depart, they raced along the pier in a desperate attempt to get on board. Only two of them managed it and the other six were, quote, left behind on the dock, cursing their luck. So how much did it cost to sail on the Titanic then? Well, the Titanic was the height of luxury and the prices of the tickets represented this. A third-class ticket was around £7, which in today's money would be just shy of £800. A second-class ticket was around £13, which today would be around £1,500. A first-class ticket started at £30, which is around £3,300 today. The most expensive first-class ticket belonged to Charlotte Drake Cadenza, and it cost £2,560 which is around £60,000 today. Did she survive the disaster? Yes, Charlotte and her family and their staff survived. So what happened the night that the Titanic sank? The Titanic had been at sea for four days and all seemed to be going well. Then at around 11.30pm on the 14th of April, disaster struck. One of the ship's lookouts noticed an iceberg straight ahead. He rang the warning bell and telephoned the bridge. The engines were quickly reversed and the ship was turned sharply, where rather than making direct impact, the, quote, Titanic seemed to graze along the side of the berg, sprinkling ice fragments on the forward deck. Believing they had successfully avoided collision, the lookouts were all relieved. But what they didn't know 
was that the iceberg had a jagged underwater spur which slashed a 300 foot gash in the hull below the ship's waterline. At the time, Captain Smith and Thomas Andrews of Harland and Wolfe, the builders of the Titanic and her sister ships, examined the damage. Five compartments were already filling with seawater and the bow of the ship pitched downwards, allowing seawater to pour from one bulkhead into the next. Thomas estimated that the Titanic would remain afloat for an hour and a half, and the captain, who had already instructed his wireless operator to call for help, ordered the lifeboats to be loaded, with women and children being boarded first, as was the law of the sea. Not that this saved as many as it should. Okay, I've seen the film, so I know this bit. There weren't enough lifeboats, right? The issue with the lifeboats is actually twofold. And again, I'll go over it quickly because there are numerous documentaries, movies, books and web pages devoted to the subject. Firstly, you're right. No, there were not enough lifeboats. According to the, the British Board of Trade regulations, all British vessels over 10,000 tonnes were obligated to carry 16 lifeboats. Now, the Titanic weighed over 52,000 tonnes and had a capacity for 3,547 people. It was required to carry lifeboats for only 962 people. One of the ship's designers, Alexander Carlyle, was worried about this and incorporated 64 boats, which would have been sufficient for everybody on board, into his design. However, he was forced to revise his ideas because lifeboats took up too much deck space and, quote, the White Star Line demanded that any extra space be used to provide more spacious promenades for the all-important first-class passengers. All of this means that the Titanic left with just 16 lifeboats and four collapsible boats, giving them a lifeboat capacity of 1,178, which for those of you paying attention represented just 53% of the people on board. Had the Titanic been at capacity, this would have been reduced to around 30%. The second issue was that the loading of the lifeboats they had was largely disorganised and haphazard, with lifeboats being launched with just a handful of people in them. This meant that when the Carpathia arrived to round up all of the lifeboats, they contained just 705 survivors. Okay, so we know that a lot of people lost their lives. So what happened to the bodies of those that were drowned? Firstly, we have to remember that not everybody would have drowned. Some would have succumbed to hypothermia, probably within just 15 minutes because of the freezing water temperatures. And others might have died from injury caused by the falling debris from the breaking ship. But back to the bodies. So three days after the Titanic sank, the Mackie Bennett left Nova Scotia on a mission to recover bodies. When it arrived at the wreck site five days later, a member of the crew reportedly said the bodies which had clustered together, quote, looked like a flock of seagulls in their white life jackets. Now, in total, they recovered 306 bodies. Another boat recovered 17 bodies. Three more bodies were discovered by a different boat. And another boat found three people in a lifeboat a month later, 200 miles away from the wreck site. So in total, 340 bodies were recovered. By the time the Mackie Benny had recovered them, it was seven days after the sinking. So these bodies had been exposed to the elements, to sea life and to birds. So no way were they in pristine condition. Those that were considered too disfigured to be identified were wrapped in canvas, weighed down with lead pipes and put back into the water. Of those recovered, 166 were put back into the sea. Those they considered salvageable were embalmed on board the Mackie Bennett and put into wooden coffins. Once they reached Nova Scotia, the John Snow and Company undertakers took care of them. Yes, the undertakers was really named John Snow. Now, owing to the amount of bodies, the local curling rink had to be used as a temporary morgue. 150 people were in Halifax. Half of those were never identified. So could there still be bodies within the wreck? Well, James Cameron, who made the Titanic movie has dived the wreck a number of times, and he said that he's not seen any bodies. Now, this isn't to say that a body trapped in the engine room where there's no oxygen to cause decomposition or sea creatures to eat them wouldn't be somewhat preserved. But if the body was just on the seabed, then no way it would have survived. And today, the site is a memorial site in the hopes that it will stop people diving down and looting it. I find it mad that originally... There would have been enough lifeboats, but then the 
company are like, no, 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 our first class passengers must have more space to walk because clearly we don't care about them getting off the boat. Well, I mean, they thought the Titanic was unsinkable, though they later claimed they never said it was unsinkable. I think by rights it should have been unsinkable, but there was like a few different things that went wrong, which is why... Yeah, it was, it it was definitely a, a catalogue of errors. But, you know, like some lifeboats were put down with just three or four people in them. It's mad, though. What do you think as well, like, like you get on, say, like a, you get on a plane today and you have like a full run-through of what happens if something happens and you have to get out of the plane. You'd think that people on board the ship if not the passengers, the crew would know what the situation was should disaster happen and they need to get people off. Yes, but I guess when that actually happens, panic sets in. Yeah. But we, we can't, today, if your boat starts sinking, a number of people and a number of ways you can call for help. Yeah. That wasn't the case when the Titanic started going down and it happened quite quickly. Mm. Um, the engineer estimated that it was their float for an hour and a half. It was actually three and a half hours, I think, before it was completely under that. Still quite a short amount of time. Yeah. Considering how big the boat was. Yeah, and how many people were on board. Yeah. Because I think that's the thing as well. Like, you have to make sure that you have, like, a certain clearance. Like, even if people are, like, jumping into the water, you need to be, like, a certain distance away from it because once it starts going, you'll get dragged. Yeah. So... And this is why we don't know who died of what cause and obviously because there are no bodies there's no way to know no such a horrible thing like that happened it's just it really is it was so preventable i think that's probably what makes it worse is that that many deaths were so preventable Mm. yeah in in no way shape form were the crew to blame no we have to remember yes they were crew but they're still gonna panic especially as men, they knew they weren't getting off that boat. Yeah. So they've got to deal with that and try and get people off. And then you've, you know, people must have done a calculation in their head and realised that there's not enough boats. So there's going to be pushing and shoving and like, you can't imagine what that situation must have been like. No. And people like with first class tickets, so probably feeling that they had more right and probably having more means to get to a boat quicker. Okay, so you said this podcast was more about those on board rather than the sinking itself. So are you going to tell us some of their stories? I am. And this is just a handful of stories. and I'm in no way discounting men's stories, and I will look at a couple. But we are a women's history blog, mm-hmm. so those are the stories that I picked to look at. That said, if people are interested and want to know more about those on board the Titanic, let us know and we'll happily come back and do another podcast or series of blogs on the topic. Yeah. Probably for days. Blogs for days. (laughs) So who are we going to look at first? I'm going to start with Molly Brown, who is arguably one of the most well-known female passengers to survive the Titanic sinking. Margaret Tobin was born on the 18th of July. 1867 in Hannibal, Missouri. The daughter of Irish immigrants, she attended the grammar school run by her aunt, Mary O'Leary. And as a teenager, she worked stripping tobacco leaves at Garth's Tobacco Company in Hannibal. When she was 18, she moved to Leadville, Colorado with her sister Mary and Mary's husband Jack, where they established a blacksmith shop. In the summer of 1886, she met minor James Joseph Brown, known as JJ, and the couple married on the 1st of September that year. They went on to have two children, a son, Lawrence Palmer, born in 1887, and a daughter, Catherine Ellen, known as Helen, born in 1889. Margaret was involved in the early feminist movement in Leadville, the establishment of the Colorado chapter of the National American Women's Suffrage Association, and worked in soup kitchens to assist the families of Leadville miners. The family's financial situation improved when J.J. Brown was awarded shares in Ibex Mining and a seat on the board as a reward for creating a method which allowed them to mine ore. In 1894, the Browns purchased a home in Denver, but not one to be idle. Margaret became a founding member of the Denver Women's Club, which was part of a network of clubs which advocated literacy, education, suffrage, 
and human rights in Colorado and throughout the United States. She raised funds to build the Cathedral of Immaculate Conception and St. Joseph's Hospital and worked with Judge Ben Lindsay to help destitute children and establish the first juvenile court in the country, which remains the basis for the US juvenile court system even today. She attended the Carnegie Institute in New York, where she studied literature, language and drama, all while raising her own two children and her three nieces. She was one of the first women in the United States to run for political office, running for the Senate eight years before women were even allowed to vote. In July 1914, she and Elva Vanderbilt Belmont organised an international women's rights conference in Rhode Island, which was attended by human rights activists from around the world. Now, Margaret had been travelling in Europe with her daughter, Helen, when she heard that her grandson, Lawrence Palmer Brown Jr., was ill and decided to return to New York on the first available ship, which just so happened to be the Titanic. She boarded alone in France after Helen decided to remain behind at the last minute. After the collision, Margaret helped load others into lifeboats before eventually being forced to board lifeboat six. She begged the crew to turn back for others, but they wouldn't in fear that they would be swamped by desperate victims. She and the other women in lifeboat six worked together to row and to keep people's spirits up. Once rescued by the Carpathia, she helped other survivors. And when they reached New York, she helped establish the Survivors Committee, which raised almost $10,000 for destitute survivors. Because she spoke French, German and Russian, she remained on board Carpathia until all Titanic survivors had met with friends, family or received medical assistance. Now, as you can imagine, this drew much public affection to her. And in a letter to her daughter, she wrote, quote, after being brined, salted and pickled in mid-ocean, I am now high and dry. I have had flowers, letters, telegrams, people until I am befuddled. They are petitioning Congress to give me a medal. If I must call a specialist to examine my head, it is due to the title of heroine of the Titanic. Later that year, in her role as chair of the Survivors Committee, she presented a silver loving cup to Captain Rostron of the Carpathia and a medal to each of the ship's crew. Throughout her life, she continued to commemorate those lost and helped to erect the Titanic Memorial that stands in Washington, D.C., she visited, she visited the cemetery in Halifax to place wreaths on the graves of victims and continued to serve on the survivors committee. She was particularly upset when, as a woman, she was not allowed to testify at the Titanic hearings. So in response, she wrote her own version of the event, which was published in newspapers in Denver, New York and Paris. She also used her new fame to talk about labour rights, women's rights, education and literacy for children and historic preservation. During the First World War, she worked with the American Committee for Devastated France to help rebuild devastated areas behind the front line and worked with wounded French and American soldiers. In 1932, she was awarded the French Legion of Honour for her, quote, overall good citizenship. Margaret died on the 26th of October 1932 and was buried next to her husband JJ in Long Island's Holy Rood Cemetery. I always thought that she was unpopular with high society. No, that seems to be like a Hollywood invention, which has very little to do with the real life Margaret Tobin Brown. The story of her being ostracised by society and disowned by her family began in the 1930s when Jean Fowler, a reporter for the Denver Post, created the story, which was then dramatised by Carolyn Bancroft who wrote a highly fictional account for a romance novel and this was turned into a booklet and it's that version that was made into radio and stage plays as well as the 1964 Debbie Reynolds movie The Unsinkable Molly Brown. For many the most famous Titanic movie is James Cameron's 1997 film Titanic and even that has taken license with Margaret and who she really was. Now, her family attempted to correct the legend of Molly, but eventually withdrew from public and refused to speak with writers, reporters or historians for many years. And you can't really blame them. No. I mean, I don't even know where to start. I mean, clearly didn't like sitting, not having anything to do. And she was amazing and smart and outspoken. And you can see why that intimidated some of the men. Yeah. And you can probably see why it was so easy to write her as being unpopular 
I mean, that certainly doesn't seem to be the case because when I started planning this and planned to look at her, I was expecting to come across a very different story. But that's a watered down version of her achievements and charitable works. So she certainly doesn't deserve the fictional reputation she got stuck with. And I, I can I can see why her family were angry about it. Yeah. Seems like no matter how loud they shout, you're still kind of stuck with it. It's not going away. Okay. So who else are we going to look at? I have four more stories for you, starting with Dagmar Jenny Bryle, who was born on the 2nd of September, 1891 in Sweden. Now, there are a lot of Danish and Swedish passengers on board the Titanic because the White Star Line had aggressively marketed there. Dagmar boarded the Titanic at Southampton with her brother Kerr and fiancé Ingvar Enanda. The trio were travelling to Rockford to stay with Dagmar and Kurt's uncle. Following the collision, the three made their way to the boat deck. In her haste, Dagmar had forgotten to put shoes on and was still in her slippers. Ingvar, being a sweetie, noticed this and brought her shoes with him, allowing her to change into them whilst he put her slippers in his jacket pocket. The three went to the port side of the boat deck and Dagmar was placed in a lifeboat, although she later couldn't remember the number of the boat. She recalled that it was not even half full when lowered. Looking up, she caught her last glance of her brother and fiancé, who were standing on the deck wearing life belts. Neither man survived, nor were their bodies ever identified. In New York, Dagmar wrote to her uncle, quote, Dearest uncle, as uncle has, of course, read in the newspaper, the Titanic has gone down. I don't know whether my fiancé or my brother Kurt are saved. Evidently, they are not, for most of the men went under. I was saved and have been taken in charge by good people. I am at a hospital, but I'm not sick, although very feeble. I have lost everything. I have no clothes and so cannot get up, but must lay in bed for present. I would have been glad if I had been permitted to die because life no longer has any value for me since I lost my beloved. I feel myself so dreadfully alone in this land. These people are certainly good, but nevertheless do not understand me. Could uncle possibly come here if it would not be too difficult or expensive? I would rather wish Uncle to come because Father has spoken so much of you that I feel I know you best. I need someone to help me to, to write. Perhaps Uncle thinks I ask too much, but I feel myself so very bewildered and lonely. With the heartiest greetings of all relatives, Uncle's affectionate, Dagmar. Dagmar was united with her, her uncle who was already in New York searching for her and travelled with him to Chicago. But she was, quote, completely broken down and decided to return to Sweden. The White Star Line paid for a ticket on the Adriatic, which arrived at Liverpool on the 12th of May. The Liverpool Post reported that, quote, Dagmar appeared to have recovered, but now and then seemed to fall into a trance, brought on by some unpleasant memory. Once back in Sweden, she married teacher Eric Holmberg. She passed away on the 4th of August, 1969. Another passenger was Leah Axe, who was born in Warsaw, Poland on the 20th of March, 1891. In 1910, she married a tailor named Sam Axman, and the couple moved to London, where they anglicised their surname to Axe and had their first son. Sam left the family and travelled to New York in 1912, where he worked as a tailor until he saved enough to send for his wife and son. Leah and her son boarded the Titanic's third class third class passengers in Southampton. Now there are varying accounts as to what happened to them after the collision but however it happened mother and son were separated. When safely aboard the Carpathia Leah searched for her son and one day whilst out on deck she heard a familiar cry. Recognising her son she ran up to the lady who was holding Frank in her arms. The woman who is described only as Italian initially refused to hand the child over but when Captain Rostron intervened, Frank was returned to his mother after she was able to, to disclose that he'd been circumcised. Sam, who was in New York waiting for the arrival of his wife and child, fell off his porch and received a concussion when he heard news of the ship's sinking. The family was reunited and went on to have two more children, a daughter named Sarah Carpathia in 1913 and a son in 1915. She was often called upon by local media to recount her story about the Titanic. And in the 1950s, a reawakening of interest in Titanic. 
she was invited as a guest to watch Fox's Titanic and A Night to Remember. Lear died on the 22nd of June 1967 and is buried in Forest Lawn Cemetery. Another passenger was Ellen Mary Nellie Barber, born on the 31st of August 1885. She was a maid in the home of Mr and Mrs Tyrell William Cavendish. And as a member of their staff, she was no stranger to Atlantic travel. She boarded the Titanic in Southampton, along with Mr and Mrs Cavendish, who were travelling to New York. After the collision, Ellen and Mrs Cavendish were placed in lifeboat six and rescued by the Carpathia. She sent a marconiogram to her parents' address, which simply said, Mrs Barber, Penshurst, near Tunbridge, Kent, England, safe, Nellie. Ellen returned to England with her employer, but was soon braved the high seas again, travelling to New York in July 1912. How long, how long Nellie remained in the employment of Mrs Cavendish is not clear. She remained unmarried and retired to London, dying on the 2nd of May 1963. Another passenger was Helen Bishop and her husband Dickinson, who boarded the Titanic in France. At the time of the collision, Helen was in bed whilst Dick was reading in their stateroom. Helen later recounted that she didn't feel the collision and it was some minutes later that someone came to their door and told them to come out onto the deck. Having dressed, they made their way up onto the deck, only to be told by an officer to return to their cabin as there was no danger. A little while later, the couple's friend, Albert Stewart, came into their cabin and expressed concern about the now noticeable list to the ship. The three then went back onto the deck where they joined a small group. After being told to don their life vests, Helen boarded lifeboat number seven. She is reported as being the first person in a lifeboat and later claims she heard the shout, all brides and grooms may board, and that three other newly married couples boarded as well. The boat was lowered at 12.45 with 28 passengers, less than half of its capacity. As there were only three crew members in the lifeboat, the passengers, including Helen, had to take a turn at rowing. To keep the spirits of the other passengers up, she told them the story about her visit to a fortune teller in Egypt whilst on her honeymoon. The fortune teller told her that she would survive a shipwreck and an earthquake before an automobile accident would end her life. So she told the others, quote, we have to be rescued for the rest of the prophecy to come true, which it kind of did. Helen survived an earthquake whilst on holiday in California, and on the 15th of November 1913, the couple's car went out of control and hit a tree. Now, although she didn't die, her skull was fractured and a steel plate had to be placed in it. The accident caused a change in her mental condition, and the couple had survived so much, divorced in January 1916. Helen died three months later after falling ill whilst visiting friends in Illinois. Tragically, it wasn't just adults that died on the Titanic. Helen Lorraine Allison was aged just two years old when she boarded the Titanic with her parents, Hudson and Bess, her brother Trevor and nurse Alice Cleaver. After the collision, the couple could not find their son or nurse and resolved not to leave without him, nor to be separated from Helen. The family was last seen standing together on the promenade deck. Their bodies were never recovered. Her death made Lorraine the only child in first and second class to die. But sadly, 53 of the 76 children in third class died. One of those was Ellis Anna Marie Anderson, born on the 19th of January 1910. She was the daughter of Alfreda and Anders Anderson from Sweden. The family had boarded the Titanic at Southampton as third class passengers and all were lost in the sinking with their bodies never to be recovered. Obviously, like you hear so much about like the people that lost their lives in the Titanic, but you never really hear anything about the fact that it wasn't just adults. Yeah. Which makes it so much more sad because obviously you get the film where they're yelling like women and children and you kind of have this hope that that's actually what happened, but you know it's not. And Yeah, it's, it's devastating, isn't it? Yeah. I don't think our minds want to think about it. No. And like Dagmar's story, like I kind of hate it even more because she was just going up on deck in her slippers and her fiance was the one that thought about, oh hang on, she needs shoes. And that's kind of like the last the last interaction she had with him was that he gave her shoes. Yeah. And that like was you it. can't imagine those final moments, can you? Like no. isn't it those details? Because so many people died 
And we've talked about this a bit before, like when you think of the Holocaust or 9-11 or even like COVID, not, not to be too maudlin, but so many people have died, you can't fathom it. Mm. And then you read personal stories and suddenly you, you realise that, yes, a staggering number of people, but each of them had a story. Do, yeah. do you know what I mean? Kind of humanises this massive tragedy. Yeah. And like almost like the mundane things, like giving a pair of shoes to someone, ordinary. It's not this grand gesture of saying how they've always loved them or anything like that. It's just a normal human interaction. Yeah. And the, like, the little detail of him tucking the slippers into his jacket pocket, you know, or breaks you. Yeah. What about the staff? We know the story of Captain Smith going down with his ship. We know the band played until the last minute. And we know of the heroic officers who stayed calm and tried to signal other ships for help and load passengers into lifeboats, even as their own fate became glaringly obvious. What we don't really talk about are the 23 staff members on board the Titanic that night, three of whom perished. Now, I don't have time to tell you all of their stories, so I want to talk about the three who refused to leave their posts that night, starting with Catherine Wallace, who was the Titanic's matron. Catherine Jane Moore was born in 1876, I know mean, a little about her life, but in 1898, she married beer brewer James Richard Wallace in London, and the couple settled in Southampton and had four children. In 1911, Catherine became a widow and to provide for her family, signed on with the White Star Line as assistant matron in third class, for which she would receive £3 a month. The night of the sinking, it was reported that she remained at her post caring for those in her charge. Her body, if recovered, was never identified. Her children were cared for by relatives and received financial aid from the Mason House Titanic Relief Fund. Lucy Violet was born in either March or April 1890 in Farnham, Surrey. Again, we know little about her life. On the 7th of September 1909, she married Lawrence Edward Snape at Tunbridge Registry Office and gave birth to a daughter named Margaret Isabel Snape on the 18th of June, 1910. Lawrence was a master of a ship and his work took the family to Singapore. However, when he died of dysentery in July, 1911, Lucy and Isabella returned to England and lived with her parents in Surrey. Lucy signed onto the Titanic on the 6th of April, 1912 as a second class stewardess. The night of the sinking, she was seen helping passengers fasten their lifeboats and wishing them goodbye. Later, she told another of the stewardesses that, quote, she did not expect to see them again. Lucy died in the sinking and her body, again, if recovered, was never identified. Her daughter remained with her grandparents and received funds from the Titanic Relief Fund. Katie Wallace Roach was the third of the women to lose her life that night. Born Kate Walsh on the 27th of October, 1869. She married John Roche sometime in 1897 and went on to have two children. Leaving their children with her mother, Kate and John moved to London, where he worked as an asylum clerk, and they had a daughter. After the death of their grandmother in 1904, the two elder children joined the family in London. However, by the 1911 census, John and the two older children were living in Liverpool, whilst Kate and their youngest child was not mentioned, and their whereabouts remains unclear to today. Kate signed onto the Titanic on the 6th of April as a stewardess, like Lucy and Catherine, she would not leave her post and was lost in the sinking. And like so many others, her body, if it was recovered, was never identified. Now, whilst it's believed that all three refused to leave their post, there are some unverified accounts that they were refused entrance or removed from lifeboats. However, as 20 other female members of staff survived, that seems a little unrealistic. Seems mad they were just, I don't know. Like, from the reports, they just seem so calm about the fact that it was sinking, sorting out other people. Some of it was, there's an account of one of the stewardesses who survived said that um, they they were almost afraid to, to get into the lifeboats, believing that somehow the boat would be saved because they believed this idea that it was unsinkable. Yeah. It's awful, isn't it? Yeah. Like we, we don't think about the female stuff. Well, I didn't. No. Like, I wasn't even sure there were female staff on board the Titanic until I started researching this, because I just never thought about it. No, same. I hadn't. I guess you kind of assumed that at the time it would have 
been mainly men, if not all men. Seems like a man type job at the time. Yeah. We are bored about. Just keep piling on the sadness. Just keep digging. Sorry. And you say it's me that does this. I know. I think your darkness has like rubbed off on me. It's taking its time. Everyone that got on that boat must have been so excited at the prospect of being on the Titanic with no idea what was about to happen. Yeah, that's true. But there are those who were so sure the Titanic was doomed. They either didn't sail or sorted their affairs before leaving. That's a little bit creepy. Tell us about those people then. Mr and Mrs Edward W. Bill of Philadelphia were planning to return to America on board the Titanic. However, Mrs. Bill had a premonition of impending doom, so the couple decided to sail on a different ship. When they reached New York, Mr. Bill gave an interview saying, quote, I had our rooms all picked out on the Titanic, and I told my wife that it would be interesting to be on the greatest ship in the world on her maiden trip. Mrs. Bill was not very enthusiastic, and when I started for the White Star office to get the tickets, she begged me not to go. She said that she couldn't tell why, but said she didn't want to go on the Titanic. I've never known her to object to any plan of travel I suggested before, but this time she was immovably firm and I yielded to her wishes reluctantly. I mean, that turned out quite lucky for them. Was she the only one that ended up feeling that way? Certainly a good advertisement for listening to your wife. No, she certainly wasn't alone. Emily Esther Louise Hart boarded the Titanic with her husband Benjamin and their seven-year-old daughter Eva as second-class passengers. Emily was so sure something would go wrong that she would sit up at night. Both mother and daughter survived the sinking, and Eva later recalled, quote, My father was so excited about it, and my mother was so upset. The first time in my life I saw her crying. She was so desperately unhappy about the prospect of going. She had this premonition, a most unusual thing for her. Eva was sleeping when the Titanic struck the iceberg, but woke when her father rushed into their cabin. He wrapped Eva in a blanket and carried her to the boat's deck where he placed his wife and daughter in lifeboat number 14. He told Eva to, quote, hold mummy's hand and be a good girl, then gave them his coat to keep them warm. It was the last time she would ever see her father. Eva and her mother were rescued by the Carpathia and arrived in New York on the 18th of April. They didn't remain in New York long and returned to England. Throughout her life, Eva spoke about the tragedy and in one interview said, quote, it seemed as if once everybody had gone, drowned, finished, the whole world standing still, there was nothing, just this deathly terrible silence in the dark night with stars overhead. Eva died on the 14th of February 1996, aged 91. And an actual fun fact, there's a Weatherspoons pub in her hometown of Chadwell Heath named the Eva Hart. Another, another passenger another passenger that had a premonition was Edith Course Evans, who became one of only four female first-class passengers to die on the Titanic. She was returning to New York after visiting her cousins in Paris. Now, Edith was travelling with a group of sisters, Mrs John Murray Brown, Mrs E.D. Appleton and Mrs R.C. Cornell. After the collision, some of the men aboard attempted to reassure the lady that the vessel was unsinkable. However, Edith told Colonel Gracie that a fortune teller had once warned her to, quote, beware of water. And she was convinced that there was truth behind the prophecy. Now, accounts state that Edith gave up her seat in the lifeboat for one of the sisters she was travelling with as she had children waiting at home for her. Another story of a past changing their mind was that of 24 year old Alex McKenzie who was given a ticket for the Titanic by his grandparents he was actually on board when he heard a voice warning him he would die if he remained on the ship when he looked around there was no one present shaking off the warning he continued walking along the gangplank only to hear it for a second and then a third time with each warning sounding stronger than the last he decided to heed the warning and disembarked and when he arrived home in Glasgow, his family were unhappy he hadn't used the ticket. That was until news of the disaster reached them. Edith Rosenbaum, also known as Edith Russell, was returning to New York after reporting on fashion at Paris's Easter Sunday races. In a letter to her secretary, she wrote, quote, I'm going to take my very much needed rest on this trip, but I cannot get over my feeling of depression and premonition of trouble. How I wish it were over. 
Emily and her small toy pig, which played music, escaped in Lifeboat 11. Edith continued to travel extensively and survived tornadoes, car accidents, and even another shipwreck. I mean, that's quite impressive. Right. That's a lot of people to have a premonition. Yeah, that's a little bit scary. We're coming up a little bit final destination. I mean, that's not all of them, I'd like to say. There are other accounts of passengers freaking out. So was it just passengers that felt that way? No, it was staff too. Jonathan Shepard served as a junior second assistant engineer aboard the Titanic. He'd already survived a collision while serving on board the Olympic. His father told the Northern Daily Telegraph that his son was, quote, down in the dumps prior to the voyage. And when he asked him, what are you afraid of? Are you afraid of death? Jonathan had replied, no, I'm not afraid of death, but I don't want to go. After the collision, Jonathan helped the ship's engineers to rig pumps inside boiler room number five, but slipped on a raised access plate and broke his leg. Despite the help of two of his crewmates, he was drowned when the bulkhead breached. Henry Wilde was another crew member transferred from the Olympic who had a bad feeling about the Titanic. In a letter to his sister, he wrote, quote, I still don't like this ship. I have a queer feeling about it. Wilde remained at his post helping passengers into lifeboats and was last seen attempting to free collapsible A and B lifeboats from the roof of the officers' quarters. His body, like so many others, was, ne- was never identified, even if it was recovered at all. And as I just said, these are just a few examples of people having bad premonitions about the Titanic. It seems to be like, kind of like the, like bad feelings and premonitions about it sinking are like pretty much like woven into, uh, I want to say like folklore kind of like around the Titanic because there's so many things that like people say like that happened that were bad luck like before it set sail mm. so like superstition why so like then people having bad feelings about it that like what ties into the superstition aspect of the build-up to people getting on the titanic and it going for its first outing yeah definitely it's interesting though there were so many had the titanic made its voyage with no disaster we wouldn't think about it no just travel nerves especially and i mean no disrespect this especially the poorer passengers who weren't used to traveling yeah you know if if you're from the upper classes and you travel frequently you'd be more excited where if if it's your first time like when it's your first time on a plane or a ferry you you're excited but you're also nervous yeah do do you know what I mean yeah definitely I don't I don't like going on boats I get seasick though so that's probably why but yeah I still don't like going on boats and I've been on a few they just make me too nervous Anyway, you promised conspiracy theories at the start of this podcast. So what have you got? I have two for you. The first is perhaps the most well-known, and that is that it wasn't actually the Titanic that sunk that night, but her sister ship, the Olympic, and it was planned for the insurance money. Now, this theory gained traction after the publication of Robert Gardner's book, Titanic, The Ship That Never Sunk. Okay, explain. The Olympic was launched in October 1910, captained by Edward John Smith. Remember him? It made four successful crossings and set all kinds of records. In fact, had the Titanic not sunk, we probably wouldn't know much about her because the Olympic was superior. On its fifth trip, the Olympic collided with the Royal Navy warship, HMS Hawk, causing extensive damage to the line of both above and below the waterline. An investigation found the Titanic was at fault, and their insurance company, Lloyds of London, refused to pay out, so the cost of repairs would have to be recovered by White Star. Plus, the Olympic would be out of service, and the Titanic's completion, which was already delayed, would be delayed further. Gone suggests that to, quote, make sure at least one vessel would be earning money, the badly damaged Olympic was patched up and then converted to become the Titanic. The real Titanic, when completed, would then quietly enter service as the Olympic. He goes further and suggests that the cost of repair was so great, the plan was to, quote, dispose of the Olympic in a way that would allow White Star to collect the full insured value of a brand new ship. And suggests that the plan was to open the seacocks to slowly flood the ship and to prevent loss of life, there would be numerous ships stationed nearby to take the passengers. 
it wouldn't matter that there weren't a life, enough lifeboats. The ship would sink so slowly, boats could make several trips. So on the night of the 14th of April, first officer Murdoch, who Gardner suggests was one of the few crew members in on the plan, was on deck looking for rescue ships. One of his most controversial statements is that the Titanic did not strike an iceberg, but one of the rescue ships which was drifting with its lights out. He based his claim on the idea that the supposed iceberg was seen at such a short distance by the lookout on the Titanic because it was actually a darkened ship. And he also does not believe an iceberg could inflict such sustained and serious damage to a still double-hulled vessel such as the Titanic. Okay, so could any of that be true? I guess anything is possible, but I doubt it. For starters, it's a big risk, especially when you consider the number of people on board. And there were some important people on board, including the chairman of the board and one of the ship's designers. Secondly, think how many people would have to be silenced for this plan to work. You've got the people who carried the, out the work on the ships, the officers, the crews of the other ships, the survivors. It just seems like an impossible number of people to keep quiet. And lastly, the Titanic wasn't insured enough to cover the decks. So what did he say happened to the real Titanic then? Well, he alleges that she spent 25 years in service as the Olympic and was scrapped in 1935. It's mad. Like, I'd heard, like, as part of, like, this whole bad luck thing, that the Titanic wasn't near being finished, so they switched the names round and sent the Olympic out with the Titanic's name on it because they just weren't going to get the Titanic finished. It wasn't, like, related to, like, the insurance claim. It was just that they were so worried that it wasn't going to be completed and people had paid for tickets and like they wouldn't be able to pay the money back because of it being so behind schedule. And obviously you don't do that with ships. Like it's bad luck. You don't rename a ship. So like I'd heard that as like a theory, insurance one. I think there are a few uh, different conspiracies about it not actually being the Titanic that sunk. Yeah. Um, but the most... This this idea kind of gained traction because of his book, and I read mm. his book, and it's scarily convincing in places. Yeah, I like bet. you you could, you could get sucked into it. I just I don't see it as being true. It's it's a heck of a risk. Yeah, with that many people on board, it's a lot of people to keep quiet about everything. Yeah. It just seems very far-fetched. I mean, we all know that actually icebergs can be extremely dangerous because mm. most of their mass is under the water. So you might think you've hit a tiny little bit, but actually they're huge underneath the water. Also, it, he didn't take into account that the earlier fire may have weakened the hull. Yeah. Um, like, like we were talking about, it, it wasn't just one thing that went wrong. No. And also, if the Titanic had hit the iceberg dead on, the Titanic probably would have been all right. I mean, it would have been damaged and it would have sunk, but not quickly. Um, another ship, a little bit smaller than the Titanic, the name of which I don't remember now, had hit an, an iceberg dead on. It actually managed to complete its journey, even though it had hit the iceberg. Yeah. So there were a lot of things that led to the sinking. Okay. So what's the second theory? The second theory is that the Titanic was sunk because of cursed cargo. Namely, the mummy of Princess Amun Ra. All I'm seeing is the mummy. That's it's going around in my head right now. Okay, we love a story about a mummy, so tell us more. So the story goes that after her death, Princess Amun Ra was mummified and placed in an ornate wooden coffin and buried deep in a vault in Luxor, where she remained undisturbed until the late 1890s when four rich young Englishmen visiting the excavations were invited to buy her. The four men drew lots and the winner paid several thousand pounds and had the coffin taken to his hotel. However, just hours later, he was seen walking out of his hotel towards the desert, never to return. The next day, one of his companions was accidentally shot in the arm by an Egyptian servant and had to have his arm amputated. The third man returned home to find that the bank holding his entire savings had failed and the last of the group suffered a severe illness, lost his job and was reduced to selling matches in the street. 
Now, I don't know about you, but I would have put that coffin right back where I found it. But this wasn't the case. After several more misfortunes, the coffin arrived in England, where it was purchased by a London businessman. However, after three of his family members were injured in a road accident and fire destroyed his house, he donated it to the British Museum. As it was being unloaded from the truck in the museum courtyard, the truck suddenly went into reverse and trapped a passerby. Then, as the mummy was being carried upstairs by two workmen, one fell and broke his leg, and the other, who was in perfect health, was dead just two days later. Despite this, the princess was installed in the Egyptian room, where the museum's light night watchman frequently heard, quote, a frantic hammering and sobbing from the coffin and other exhibits in the room were thrown around in the night. Cleaners refused to go near it. A watchman died on duty, and after a visitor flicked a dust cloth at the face painted on the coffin, his child died of measles soon afterwards. The authorities had the mummy carried down to the basement, believing it would put an end to the strange going on. Only it didn't. Within a week, one of the helpers was seriously ill, and the supervisor was found dead at his desk. As you can imagine, the papers heard about this strange event and a photographer was sent to take pictures. When he developed the images, he saw, quote, a horrifying human face on the coffin and was said to have gone home, locked his bedroom door and shot himself. After this, the museum sold the mummy to a private collector who banished it to his attic after continual misfortunes and deaths. When Madame Helena Blavatsky, a well-known occultist, visited his home, she was, quote, seized with a shivering fit and searched the house for the source of an evil influence of, increase, of incredible intensity. She finally came to the attic and found the mummy case. She advised the owner to get rid of the mummy as soon as possible. As almost 20 people had met with misfortune, disaster or death from handling the casket in barely 10 years, who would want it? Well, eventually a, quote, hard-headed American archaeologist who dismissed the happenings of, uh, who dismissed the happenings as quirks of circumstances, brought the mummy and arranged for it to be shipped to America on the Titanic, where it accompanied 1,500 passengers to their deaths at the bottom of the Atlantic. I mean, that's a lot, like a lot of death, destruction, curses. <laughs> Is any of it true? Well, no. In 1985, Charles Haas, president of the National Titanic Historical Society, gained access to the ship's cargo manifest and cargo diagrams. And there's no mention of the mummy being on board. In fact, the mummy to which the story is actually just a coffin lid and it's never left the British Museum. I mean, it's still there to this day. You can see it on their website and or in person when it reopens. So where did the story begin then? It was created by William Steed and Douglas Murray. Steed was a well-known journalist, believer in mysticism and spiritualism, who consulted mediums and investigated psychic phenomena. Less is known about Murray, who's been described as, quote, an Egyptologist and the man who shipped the, money, the mummy in question to London in the first place, but it's doubtful he was either of those things. The two of them created an elaborate horror story about a mummy that was brought to England and brought sickness, death and destruction to its owner. Now, sometime after creating this story, they visited the British Museum, noticed the coffin lid and incorporated that into their story. Um, adding that the look of terror and anguish in the faces in the face depicted on the coffin lid indicated that the coffin's original occupant was a tormented soul and her evil spirit was now loose in the world. The two stories were made into one epic tale and shared with the press. And we all know the press aren't going to let the truth stand in the way of a good story. Okay, but how did that come to be connected with the Titanic? Well, William Steed was actually travelling on the Titanic. He was heading to New York. And whilst on board, he shared the story with other passengers. Now, Steve didn't survive the sinking, but one of the survivors recounted his cursed mummy to fell in an interview. And all, as with all legends, it kind of exaggerated and exaggerated until it built into the one I just shared with you. As I said, if you visit the British Museum, either on their website or in person, once we're allowed out of lockdown, you can visit the unlucky mummy for yourself. 
kind of interesting how any kind of like disaster kind of gets wrapped up in this conspiracy theories or kind of gets pulled into curses and all kinds of things like that, isn't it? I think it's because we want an explanation. Yeah. Something so horrific can't just be chance. There must be a reason for it. Someone to I think blame. that's human nature. Like we said before, like things like the Holocaust. And once you start hearing the personal story, it really hits home. I think because anyone can be like, oh yeah, the Titanic happened here, the bare facts of what happened. But I think once you start looking at actual human stories i think that's when it starts to make it more real like definitely it, like physically affects you once you hear the personal stories i think you can shy it off until that point and it's the little human touches the father who gave his daughter he wrapped his daughter in a blanket and then gave them his coat to keep them warm yeah because that's such that's exactly what a, a parent would do yeah but that's also kind of like him knowing that he wasn't getting off that shit yeah, he knew he wasn't going to survive, so his coat might keep his wife and daughter alive. Yeah. Like, the, the maid helping put people in lifeboats and, and saying to one of her friends, I'm, I'm not going to see you again. I know what how this ends. Yeah. Even though she's got her own daughter waiting at home. When we think about the Titanic disaster, you've almost... It's part of you that wants to blame the crew, wants to blame the captain. Oh, they didn't make the right decisions. They didn't load the lifeboats fully. They didn't do this. They didn't do that. But these, they were so brave. They, they knew what was coming for them. Like, so few of them survived. But they did their duty. And we have to remember that like, the human cost, it wasn't just those that lost their life on the ship. Like, so many men died, like, from Southampton on board the ship that there were whole streets that were just every house lost a, a father or a brother or a son yeah the the tragedy kind of ripples outwards you know people found themselves in new york unable to speak the language with no no other family look at dagmar she she arrived in new york and she lost everything yeah and it, it's those little stories that kind of get lost in the bigger tragedy yeah, it kind of, it didn't end with people being rescued. No. I find it, I'm not sure if I find the fact that bodies that were unsalvageable were placed back into the water to be reunited with their other passengers. I'm not sure if I find that horrific or kind. Do, do you know what I mean? Because the chances are another member of their family may have, died or a friend yeah and so they say so they were left there but I'm not sure if putting them back into the water was a kindness or a callousness do, do you know what I mean yeah I guess probably their thinking though is if they were that bad they didn't want to take them back to a family that might not be able to tell them who they are and leave them traumatised. Because if they took them back, they were going to have to identify who they were. Or at least try. Yeah, I guess there was no DNA or anything. It just... I don't know. And, like, burial at sea is kind of like a... a, like a normal thing, isn't it? Like for Yeah, but generally that's done by choice. True. I'm not sure if they deserve to be brought back to land and buried, or whether leaving them there was the right thing. I'd, I'd be interesting to put that out on social media, actually, and see what other people think. Yeah. Because it's, it kind of feels a bit morally ambiguous to me. I think, And I, I do understand the practicalities of it. Like, embalming that many people would be a, a nightmare, especially on board a ship. Yeah. I guess as well, like, you have to think that sensibilities were quite different to how they are now. Mm. So perhaps, like, thinking that a wife's going to have to identify this half-eaten, half-rotted corpse. Probably not the thing that they want a widow to be doing. I guess that's kind of why, like, the site itself is like, like a memorial site, because so many people were technically buried there. Mm. So it is, in a way, its own kind of graveyard. So the sinking of the Titanic is a tragedy. It devastated families. It took the lives of over 1,500 people and traumatised those who survived. 
yes, there are conspiracy theories and Hollywood like Hollywood versions of the tragedy. But at its core, we've got to remember how many people lost their lives, both on board the Titanic and lost family members at home as well. You know, wives, mothers, daughters, sisters waiting at home for family that never arrived. Okay, coming next, podcast-wise, we have our first ever Solving History podcast, which will be an exclusive to our patrons. So if you want to get hold of that, we're going to be talking about the Princes and the Tower, and you can sign up for just a pound a month, and the link for our patron will be in the description box. Next month's After Dark was a unanimous victory for dark tourism. Dark tourism is one of those things that is morally a little bit ambiguous. It's this aspect of places such as concentration camps, Nuremberg, the killing fields of Cambodia, the site of the Twin Towers in New York becoming tourist destinations. Anyway, until next month, take care of yourselves and each other.